It's Good Canada. I'm Peyton Smith, and this is The Stew. With Canada's food system continuing to grow and innovate, understanding what information is credible, who to trust, and how to feed ourselves and our families can be incredibly confusing. That's why I'm here, to share relevant information on food topics you care about most with the help of experts. Today, we have with us the Vice President of Plant Biotechnology for CropLife Canada. In this role, they work with domestic and international agricultural stakeholders and governments on the development of policies, regulations, and science related to plant biotechnology. Prior to joining CropLife Canada, he worked at the Canadian Food Inspection Agency for 10 years. His work there focused on the regulation of novel plants and new varieties. Our guest holds a Bachelor of Science in Agriculture from the Nova Scotia Agricultural College, concentrating on agronomy and pest management. He also holds a master's degree in agriculture from the University of Guelph, specializing in horticulture and plant breeding. He's been involved in agriculture from an early age, having grown up on a potato farm in Bedeck, Prince Edward Island. So let's dive in. If you could please introduce yourself, where you're talking to us from, and share your pronouns. Uh, great, thank you. So my name is Ian Affleck. I'm uh, uh, broadcasting from Ottawa, Ontario. Um, but um, probably as covered in your introduction, I'm originally from Prince Edward Island, grew up on a potato farm there, I studied agriculture, uh, worked at the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, now work for CropLife Canada. But really, I'm, I'm an agronomist, a plant breeder, uh, someone who's passionate about agriculture and just excited to talk about uh, um, just about anything uh, that people will want to talk about in ag. Um, pronouns are, are he, him. And um, I would say it's exciting to be invited on to have a, a big discussion about ag because I would say usually I'm the person who's annoying people at a dinner party <laughs> because they accidentally asked a food production question and then they're like, when will this person ever stop talking? So, <laughs> so I appreciate the invite to uh, to have a chat. That's great. So, so glad that you're on today, Ian. And this is truly our first official recording of the podcast. And I think it's the perfect topic to begin with. I reached out to you to explore the topics of GMOs and gene editing, because quite frankly, I would like to know more. I work in the agri-food system. I have a science background, but I still only understand the basics of this increasingly important topic. So to start off strong, can you tell us what are GMOs? What is gene editing? What's the difference? Tell us what it is. Oh, and, and I think that that's great. And I think that that's where so many people are at around GMOs. And there was a great Jimmy Kimmel skit. If you ever saw that clip where he did I the live on the street it. thing and he goes out yeah. and kind of says, do you think GMOs are bad? And someone says, yes. And then he goes, what are GMOs? And like, I have no idea. And, <laughs> yeah. and I think that's that that's true in life in general. When you don't know what something is or you're, you haven't been exposed to it, you kind of go, well, then no, because I don't, I'm not comfortable with it yet. So uh, conversations like this hopefully will help people become uh, more aware and give them a chance to learn. Um, I think that's so often, sometimes people view it as when they say someone didn't know, it's not their fault they didn't know. They, they didn't study genetics and plant science and plant breeding. It's our job to give them the opportunity to know. Absolutely. Right? That's the, the piece. So what are GMOs and what is G, gene editing? What's the difference? Why does it all matter? So to kind of sum up, Everything I did in school, I studied plant breeding, and and really GMOs, gene editing, or and there's like 20 to 30 different plant breeding tools in a plant breeder's toolbox. They're all just different things a plant breeder's going to do while they're breeding a new variety of a crop. 
Okay. So, so it's just another tool in the toolbox. It's just really unfortunate that gene editing and GMOs are kind of the only two tools exciting enough that people actually want to know them. Because <laughs> there's yeah. other really awesome stuff in the plant breeding toolbox, but they're just, they don't make the headlines. So often when discussing them, I'll start with a pretty lengthy history of what plant breeding is and how it started like 10,000 years ago, as soon as we started agriculture, started planting seeds, keeping only the best, the tallest, the strongest crops. We were breeding. We were, we were impacting the genes of those plants by picking only the best genes to go forward. Kind of the survival of the fittest, but in an agricultural sense, it's like the survival of the most agriculturally appropriate genetics. We were, select, we were the thing selecting for those. Okay. Go forward, forward, forward. I'll give exa- I always give examples like broccoli didn't exist before 600 BC, which I think often shocks people. You think broccoli's been around forever. Yeah, like and it was, what was it? It was wild mustard that's been around okay. forever. So wild mustard, ha- having been around forever, was really the um, was the ancestor. And then in different parts of the world, people like to eat different parts of wild mustard. Okay. So if you like the flowers you'd always choose the flowers and eventually it became cabbage. Um, if you like terminal buds, it would eventually become Brussels sprouts. If you liked another part, I'm trying to remember all my taxonomy, it's like the lateral buds, eventually it became uh, cauliflower. Okay. So, so Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, cabbage, kale, kohlrabi, and broccoli aren't related. They're the identical plant. They're they just, all came from this wild they, mustard. They all came from wild mustard. And they all just express their genes differently to create what looks like different plants. So uh, broccoli to cauliflower is the same as a red potato to a white potato. So interesting. Yeah, there's so much. So so that's what plant breeding is. Then we figure out genetics and Mendel comes along and the wrinkly peas and the smooth peas and all the stuff we did in high school. Oh, I remember. It's coming back. Yes. Someone figures out (laughs) that there's math behind that genetics and genes, and then we start doing other cool stuff, we realize we can crossbreed species that we didn't think we could. So a Jamaican uh, sweet orange and an Indonesian pomelo get planted on a Caribbean island beside each other in the 1700s. They cross-pollinate, which we didn't think could happen, and you get grapefruit. And before that, grapefruit didn't exist before 1750. That was an accidental plant breeding experiment that no one knew they were doing. A great accident, but... So what does all that mean for the question you actually asked? What are GMOs and gene editing? <laughs> it's just another tool to, to have that impact on genetics, which is trying to make crops better for agriculture. Um, now, specifically, GMOs are when you take uh, a piece of DNA from a different species and put it in that species. So if you were to take a corn gene and put it in soybeans, or if you were to take a soil bacteria gene and put it in corn to do something that's awesome in corn. So that's what GMOs are. 99.9% of the time you're taking DNA from one thing and putting it in another. Gene editing is 99.9% of the time tweaking the genes that are already inside the plant. So okay. that, that's really the big difference. GMOs are grabbing chunks of DNA from different places. Gene editing is tweaking what's already in the plant. So you know that disease resistance is controlled by gene one and two. And if I can just get one of those letters in gene one or two to change, we'll get 15% more disease resistance. Instead of doing 7,000 plant crosses waiting for a random genetic change, you just go in and like Word edit, like, like Microsoft Word, and you go, okay, fix that. Uh, the the other way to explain it is like GMOs are are like if you if you had a a really good page in a different book 
And if you could take that page and put it in this book, this book would be so much better. Whereas gene editing is more, oh, if I could just fix that typo, this thing would be would read so much better. So that that's kind of an example uh, of the two different technologies, if that covers it. Yeah, the book analogy was great. That totally helped me understand kind of what you were saying. I have to ask, have you ever sat in a lab and done this, or do you just know about it so well? So I haven't done genetic engineering. I haven't done gene editing. I did like the conventional breeding or like the old school breeding where you, you yep. take cross-pollinate two crops, you do that 8,000 times, you put <laughs> 8,000 seeds like into the ground, you let all 8,000 grow and you go, one of those might have done what I wanted it to do. Because, might have done. <laughs> because at that point, you're, 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 you're waiting for natural variation in genetics to make the change you're looking for. And it's like, you and I are not 50-50, our parents. We're about 48-48 with 4% random genetic mutations that make us unique. Yep. So what plant breeders are doing is they're continually crossing plants, waiting for that random change to be the one they want. Got it. And there's different ways they can nudge that random change in the direction they're looking for. But essentially, they just keep throwing the dice until they get snake eyes. These advanced breeding techniques, and there's like, like I said, like 20 or 30 of them, they help you get there so much more precisely and so much faster and so much more efficiently. And that's what's really exciting about uh, modern plant breeding is the ability for plant breeders to react to the challenges farmers are seeing so much faster than they were able to before. Got it. Uh, so what are examples of GMOs and gene edited crops? Like at the grocery store, what should we see? Yeah, so so the kind of the big ones in Canada, the ones we're growing are canola, corn, soybean. Um, you know, 90% of those three crops uh, are going to be um, GMOs. Okay. Uh, there's also some sugar beets. Um, we have apples and potatoes. Not a lot of those grown, but a little bit. Uh, 100% of sugar beets, though. Uh, and then if you go around the world, you've got cotton, you've got some squash, uh, almost all papaya. Um the papaya is a great story. That was one of the first gene-edited products, and it was the University of Hawaii that was seeing a disease wipe out the papaya fields. They okay. invented a GMO papaya that was resistant to the ring spot virus, gave that out to the farmers, and saved the Hawaiian papaya industry um, with GMO papaya. So, so now basically all of them are GMOs? Yeah, I think it's 80% of the world supply because 80% of the world supply of papaya comes from Hawaii. And Got then it. there's about 20% that might not be GMO because it comes from a part of the world that doesn't have the same disease. So mm -hmm. they don't have a need for the technology. Um, so, yeah, so a lot of uh, uh, a number of key GM crops you see around the world. Uh, in terms of gene editing, you're probably not going to see any gene edited crops on the shelf at this point. Okay. We're just on the verge of the commercialization of gene edited crops. We're just like we're right at the precipice of this becoming real. It's uh, It's been a burgeoning area of science for 10 to 15 years. And in the U.S., they have some uh, high oleic soybeans, uh, heart-healthy oil soybean, about 100,000 acres of it that's already in production. But you're not really going to see that on the shelf. That's going to go more to like cooking oils and, and you know, oils that are going to be used in, in food manufacturing. Uh, so you wouldn't see a bottle of that oil necessarily on the shelf. But that's one of the first products to really come to market. Oh, and there's a, a purple tomato uh, coming out of Japan that's got more antioxidants and, and heart uh, lower blood uh, properties that can assist in lowering blood pressure. Got it. 
Got it. Actually, since you bring up the tomato, I have to ask. So if you Google GMOs, a common photo that pops up is a tomato with like a needle in it. And yes, like that has to not be right. Like that has to be incorrect. The mystical science liquid that we just <laughs> squeeze into crops. I wish plant breeding was that. Every that plant breeder wishes that was true. If I could just Got walk it. up to the thing and like inject it and then it would be better afterwards, how awesome that would be. Got but it. no, that like at no point are you injecting crops <laughs> with needles to make changes. These are genetic changes that are done at the genetic level. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from one of the very first GMO crops was okay. a tomato. Um, and it was the Flavor Saver Tomato was the name of it. Okay. And comedically, uh, the, the the trait was that it stored better and traveled farther longer. So you got less food waste. That was that was what they did. They made a tomato that was better in storage. It bruised less. But the problem was it didn't taste very good. They Oh, no, that doesn't work at all with the name. So, so okay. the story is that the genetics, that the variety that they got, that they put the trait into, wasn't a great and flavorful variety. Got it. So the flavor saver tomato wasn't very flavorful. Therefore, it wasn't a commercial success. But it was like one of the first products to ever make it to market was the flavor saver tomato. So it became kind of a brand ambassador to GMOs for the next 20 to 30 years. So that photo, we should not be uh, thinking that's true and that's how that happens at all. Yeah, there's no GMO tomatoes. Um, Got it. But there is a purple gene-edited tomato that might be on the market soon. But yeah, Have you no seen GMO it? Like, tomatoes. is it purple purple? Oh, it's deep purple. Like, beautiful. It looks like an heirloom tomato. You know, we see like those really, yeah. yeah, it looks like that. It's deep, deep, deep purple. It's beautiful. Huh. It would look beautiful on your plate. I'm thinking like just add some colors and stuff, right? The, the, the culinary opportunities with that will be interesting as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. So speaking about safety and not a photo of a tomato with a needle in it, um, as we're speaking to Canadians, they were probably wondering like, what is the safeguard process for these products? Um, is it monitored by Canada? How do these things get approved? What is that whole process? Yeah, and I think there's really two um, th there's two elements of the safety there. One is so there's hundreds of new varieties of crops produced every year by plant breeders in Canada and around the world. So every year you're getting a wheat variety that's two percent better than the one before, and they just keep marching forward. That's how we keep making better and better crops. This isn't GMOs; it's just regular plant breeding, and that's happening here around the world and all of those varieties are specialized for you know southern southern alberta or southern ontario northern ontario slightly different variety for there all of those varieties that have that natural genetic variation plant breeders understand the crops they're working on they're ensuring that the crops they produce are safe so that's for every variety that comes to market okay so then for a special few things there are additional safeguards in place so for mm -hmm. genetic modification if you add in a foreign gene into the crop, the government is going to do a safety assessment of that crop to make Perfect. sure that you did your homework as a plant breeder. So it's not really that anything new is happening. It's that the government's making sure you did what you've always done with your with your plant breeding. So, so there's multiple levels of safety. And then at the other end of your food safety system, the government, just like it does in any part of food, is constantly monitoring the food system to make sure it's safe. You know, picking up uh, lettuce from the store and making sure it doesn't have listeria or salmonella in it. You know, we'll see outbreaks at times. But but in plant breeding, they, they do that for everything. Is, is your food continually safe? The Canadian Food Inspection Agency is constantly monitoring the food on the shelf. 
And and we're, we're lucky to be able to say that from plant breeding, there's never been a problem with food that makes it to the shelf. So you've oh, got incredible. what the plant breeders are doing in their own programs to make sure it's safe. You've got the government checking in on certain things that they call novel foods. So we don't regulate GMOs in Canada. We manage novel foods. And this is where it gets okay. complicated and bureaucratic. But Terminology, yes. What it's saying is that it doesn't matter how you made the crop. It matters mm-hmm. what you made. Mm-hmm. So they have criteria like, did you change an essential nutrient above or mm-hmm. below the daily intake level? If mm-hmm. you did that, you want to talk about that plant. doesn't matter if it's a GMO or conventional. Okay. If you wildly change vitamin C up or down, mm-hmm. you need to go have a chat with Health Canada before you commercialize that. Hmm. So, okay. so that's why in Canada, we don't really regulate GMOs or gene editing. We regulate novel foods. Is it truly different than what we had before? If it is, then we need to take a look at it. And I think that often runs counter to what some of the things you might Google or see, which is like GMOs are dangerous. Mm-hmm. And the government's been really clear that GMO is just a tool to create a new crop. The question mm-hmm. is, is the crop safe? And that's true whether it's conventionally gene edited or otherwise. And they're just continuing to monitor for new products that pop up or yeah. and things like that. And continuing to issue new guidance so that plant breeders know when they cross over those thresholds into novelty so that they can come in and get their check and then the government will be confident that those products are safe. Interesting. Um, I thought it was funny how you brought up the lettuce and listeria and things like that. And when you were talking before about a dinner party and people just want you to be quiet about what you do for a living, that's one of mine. So if I'm at a dinner party and I want to chat about something, um, a lot of people think that when they get that notification that, you know, this batch of lettuce isn't good and we shouldn't be consuming it, they think our food system isn't safe. And to me, my counter argument is that means it's extremely safe if we're getting those notifications and we're not putting that into our bodies. So that when I I'm at a dinner party, that happens. (laughs) And and, and if you look at the reports from like CFI or others, it's like 98.9% or 99 point whatever percent of our food is constantly safe at all times. Yes. And when you look globally, that's an insanely high number considering how much food and the type of food and how we're processing it is moving around the world, right? Like it's an incredible, that's why you don't, you you rarely hear about foodborne illness. It's relatively minor and on very specific things. So that that's the sign of a well-functioning system. Yeah. I agree. Um, so speaking internationally, I've read stuff, I've seen articles, and my understanding is that the EU is no longer allowed to grow GMO crops. So is that true? Can you tell me about it? Is that something that's coming to Canada? What are your thoughts? Oh, yeah. The, the rat's nest that is how the EU manages GMOs. <laughs> And then how that gets projected out into media and information is so complicated, and I'll try to explain it in a simple way, but I've been trying to explain it in a simple way for like 15 years, and I don't know if I figured it out yet, but (laughs) part of it is the complication of the politics of the European Union. So you've got 29 member state countries who are independent countries, but they all agree that the European Union is going to do certain work for them. Right. One of those things is the European Food Safety Authority, EFSA. Um, And EFSA is the one that does the safety assessments of GMOs for Europe. So EFSA has approved every GMO, and it is approved for consumption or to be grown in Europe if they so choose. The challenge is that the member states also get to make up their own mind on stuff. So what Europe said is, look, we said these are safe. And they're safe for food and they're safe for trade. So you can't, on a scientific basis, say that you don't want them 
And that that's what ends up making Europe one of the, I think, the number one or two largest importer of GMOs in the world. There okay. where all of our, where all the GMOs we don't use in our own country, they all go to Europe because they buy them all from us. Currently. Currently. So they're okay. the, like the one or two, uh, um, China's the other one, of the largest importers of GMOs in the world. But the member states, as long as they don't cite science, can tell their farmers that they're not allowed to grow them. Does that hurt you? Like internally, emotionally, <laughs> emotionally, it does. As a scientist, yeah. it does. Yeah. Uh, but there is an element of that where you have to respect the culture of different regions. Absolutely. Right? Yes. However, however, when Ireland says their formal position is we don't allow GMOs because it runs counter to our tourism strategy, mm-hmm. I don't feel that's a cultural reason. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, that one doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that those are their legal rights. But what's really unfortunate is Ireland imports GMOs from Brazil and Canada and the U.S. to feed to its cattle. Right. But th- or, or to put into their food. But their farmers don't have the opportunity to benefit from those technologies like our farmers do. Technically, it's good for us because we have a competitive advantage. Absolutely. In growing yes. corn and soy. Um, but it's really not fair. Like that's like – as a Canadian agriculturalist, I'm happy we have an advantage. As a scientist and as someone who believes in fairness, I'm like, that's not fair that they are corn farmers don't get those technologies. Yeah, so the consumers are still consuming GMO products, but their farmers, their friends down the street, their coworkers, their families don't get to use that technology. No, and that, that just seems, but then what comes out of Europe is like, Europe bans GMOs. And it's like, no. Europe imports a lot of GMOs and they they limit some of their farmers from being able to use them. Right. And that is really unfortunate because it it leads into that problem of Europe not being as productive agriculturally as it could be. Mm -hmm. And if they're not growing the food in their own backyard, that means someone else has to grow it for them. Mm -hmm. And as we're all trying to do our part to grow food, it feels that it's unfortunate they're not kind of picking up as much as they could. Um, now, on the gene editing front, they have, their parliament uh, and their science bodies have all said, we don't want to apply the GMO rules to gene editing. Okay. The GMO rules in Europe are really antiquated and overly heavy and stifling and problematic. And everybody's recognizing, even in their farm-to-fork strategy, that gene editing has a place in meeting their environmental goals. Hmm. But the politics of Europe is super complicated on this, and they are in the midst of a multi-year review to try to figure out how to do it. I think they just did a survey, the the government, of their population, and like 70-some percent of people said the GMO rules should not be the rules we use for gene editing. Interesting. Okay. So that was really positive. Absolutely. Right? So there's hope. There's hope. When I show maps of the world, usually Europe's always in red, and (laughs) it's in blue right now. Because it's yeah. like maybe. maybe, maybe it might happen. Yeah. So to lead to that, is is this going to happen to Canada? Are we having discussions about banning GMOs? Where do we fit into all of that? Luckily, Canada has been a very science-based country since the beginning. So in okay. 1996, and we also chose a better way to go better than the rest of the world. So the rest of the world went, we're going to make GMO regulations. And Canada said, that doesn't make sense because it's just one tool in the toolbox. We're going to make novelty regulations and just regulate yep. what's new. So that gave us much more flexibility. So as gene editing comes in, Health Canada has recently published new guidance 
mm-hmm. that explains how gene editing fits into this framework. The CFIA is just about to do the same thing, and all of it is leading to a very clear <coughs> and reasonable approach to gene editing for Canada. So we're pretty excited that gene editing that uh, Canada has a great opportunity to be a leader in gene editing uh, and in the way they're handled. So we're doing well. Yeah, we we are we are doing well. Um, I, I think we're on the right track, and we're sticking with science at yep. a time when things can be pretty polarizing. And I think that's mm-hmm. pretty exciting. And Canada is not the first. I think this is what's exciting. It's good to see that Canada is sticking with science, and it looks like we're going to get it right. Um, <clears throat> we're not like it's not like we figured it out before the rest of the world. Argentina put out their new guidance in 2015, the U.S. in 2018, Japan in 2019, like a number of South American countries. So we're we're building on other countries having also figured this out over the years around the world. We should take the credit. We did it, too. We're getting there. I think we're going to do it the best by the time we're done. Excellent. Um, excellent. But but it's all built on kind of the evolution of the science and the understanding of of the situation around the world. So to build on that, why are Canadians so concerned? Should we all be concerned? Should we be looking for non-GMO labels? Tell me what I should be doing at the grocery store. Yeah, I think people should be interested. Like, I I think that is really important. Like, be curious, ask questions, you know, engage with your food system. I I think it's it kind of goes back to that Jimmy Kimmel skit where he's like, why are people so concerned? And it's not I don't really think that a lot of the polling shows that much concern as it does so much interest. Mm-hmm. Right. Because when you drill down, you usually find out that someone's like, well, I just don't understand what this is. And when we think about uh, kind of proxies for concern and, and I'll get asked this stuff is like, well, look at everywhere you look in the grocery store is the non GMO project. Right? right. So clearly people are concerned. And I would say from what I see in marketing, I wouldn't equate the success of that brand to public concern. What I would equate it to is absence labeling is a huge marketing push right now. It's how many stickers can you put on the box that say what's not in it, right? Marketing used to always be about what the product is, Mm -hmm. and now so much of marketing is about what the product is not. And the non-GMO sticker, because there's so few GMO crops, Mm -hmm. is a really affordable certification to get because – most products don't have GMOs in them. So I was just going to say, like, you listed off, let's call it 10, 11 GMO products that are even available to consumers. And then you go to the grocery store, and this is an extreme example, but you have a water bottle and it says non-GMO. And in my head, I'm like, well, that's there's not even a GMO option. Like, I can't even choose between <laughs> non-GMO water and GMO water. It's just not an option. It's just marketing, right? Or you'll see the non-GMO project sticker on salt. Right. And you're like, there's no DNA in salt. So <laughs> it would be impossible. If that was GMO, I would have major questions because right. what's in your salt? It's on kitty litter, which is essentially ground up dirt, right? Like so yeah. it's yeah. it just shows you that that the proliferation of that sticker isn't really a proxy for the consumer concern. It's a proxy for trying to get as many labels on your product as you can. I went to Costco the other day. And they were giving out the little food things. Yep. And they said, here, try this. It's it's non-GMO. It's no salt added. It's it's no gluten. It's no this. It's no that. And then I, I looked, and it was like pasta with some sauce and some cheese on it. And, and I said, yeah, yeah, but what is it? Well, like, I was just like, going to say, you, like, 
With all those labels, what actually is it then? Yeah. Are you selling the pasta, the sauce, or the cheese? Like, I just heard a list of things that it's not, but what what product are you selling? And yeah. she's like, oh, it's the sauce. And I'm like, oh, okay, so thank you. it's yeah. pasta sauce. And then you've got all these absence claims. So, so I think when we see, um, when we look at the public about where their concern is, it, it, it's not a massive level of concern with GMOs. I think mm-hmm. it's, you know, 30, between 30 and 15%, depending on when and how you ask the question. And what I thought was really interesting is the general concern around gene editing was pretty close to the general concern for plant breeding, period. Right. And I think what that shows is that we can't just jump into a conversation about GMOs and gene editing if you haven't explained that we breed plants at all. Mm-hmm. I sat in on some public um, like public engagement things where they were asking general public people questions, and they said, well, plant breeders do this. And on more than one occasion, people said, and it was a group of six people, they're like, yeah, but there's like plant breeding's not a job. Like no one breeds plants. That's not a thing people do. And you're sitting there like, this is like my whole career. This is my whole uh, life. <laughs> but but and but that's not their fault. They don't know. I was just gonna say we can't blame the consumers that are no. listening to the podcast. That's not their no. job. Our job is to help them understand it. Yeah, and I don't say that with humor toward the customer. I say right. it with a sad reflection on the agricultural sector and Absolutely. even more the seed sector or we as plant breeders. Yeah. How poor of a job we've done reaching right. out to the consumer to tell them about what we do on their behalf, right? Like that's that's a failure on our part to to reach out. And I think that's a big history of GMOs is and the inception of GMOs, we're like, who are our customers? Our customer is the farmer. Mm-hmm. So we're going to explain to the farmer why these are safe and beneficial and why we do it and how we do it, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the government wants to know. So we'll explain to the government X, Y, Z. That's why the government's comfortable and why the farmer's comfortable. But we never spoke to the public because we said, well, that's not our customer. But it is. It is. And it, it, we're like, no, but that's the grocery store's customer. And it's like, if we thought the grocery store was going to explain all that for us, we were sorely mistaken. <laughs> exactly. So so we, we, we did not take part in that engagement mm-hmm. uh, and others did. Right. And you can't blame the public for not hearing a message that wasn't being provided to them. That that's on us. And we're trying to do better with that on gene editing. I think that's like the science community at large is going, okay, we have to get out there and engage more and answer questions earlier if we want the public to to not go through those, you know, 15 to 20 dark years on GMOs, which I think we're coming out of in terms of people's comfort with GMOs. So as somebody who's listening to this podcast, hopefully we've opened their eyes, maybe not necessarily change their opinion on GMOs, just do some research is kind of the message that I was hoping for today. But when they're doing that, what's in it for them? Why should a consumer, a Canadian, want this technology used in their food system? And I think that's one of the challenges with, like, if you want to call it the first generation of GMOs, mm-hmm. it wasn't obvious to the consumer what was mm. in it for so like right. you can see if any new technology comes along and you don't see a benefit in it for you, it's not clear, then why mm-hmm. would you bother going toward it? You're like, Absolutely. well, I'll just stick with what I know if I can't see that there's a reason to do this. So mm-hmm. I, I don't blame anyone for that. But I think because with the first generation, it's like, so what's in it for the consumer to have a herbicide tolerant crop, right? Yeah. Like I don't farm. Um so trying to explain, well, if it's herbicide tolerant, you control the weeds with with like one pass of a herbicide instead of four passes of a tractor. 
Mm-hmm. You don't plow the soil, which lets the carbon stay in the soil. Organic matter goes up, biodiversity in the soil goes up. Food, the cost of food production stays low so that when we see food inflation, food is inflating from a $2 price instead of a $4 price. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't stop food inflation, but it makes it less worse. <laughs> well, and I was just thinking like the base number. Yeah. But like to use the explanation that you just did, it makes sense to me, but I can think of like friends who, you know, work in finance or whatever. They're like herbicide tolerant. Okay. Well, we'll slow down. What even is that to begin with? So how possibly could they understand what the benefits for GMOs are? Right. So that's why I think it's exciting when you get into kind of the next generation of plant breeding and you've got the purple tomato, which people Mm -hmm. can see a direct value from, or even like disease resistant plants. I think it equates more because people have, people can see diseases on houseplants. They can see Mm -hmm. it on their garden. They can understand that something rots in the bag in their, in their house. Right. So they can get, they get that. Um, it, it, it speaks to them more or healthier heart oil, soybeans, right? Like that makes more sense. Um, there's some really cool, uh, companies like Pairwise working on strawberries with different flavor profiles or that'll last longer on the shelf or lettuce that doesn't brown as quickly when you cut it. Perfect. Like these are things that people be like, oh, I can see a benefit here. So if I can see a benefit, then maybe there's more that I'm open to learning about because I get it. So Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that we can't explain the value of the first generation of GMOs. We just got to do a better job of it. Right. I think that's what we, we failed at. So, so I'm hoping that, um, as this comes along and especially if the cost of developing this stuff stays lower, which it really looks like it will with gene editing, you're going to see more niche market products that do cool stuff. Mm, okay. Like, right. If, if it takes 150 million in 16 years to develop a product, yep. you're, you're going to put it in corn because corn is growing around the world. Mm-hmm. Right. But if it costs a million bucks and three years to develop or six years to develop. Maybe you'll do a tomato for North America right. or Southern Ontario. Right. So there's so much, so many more opportunities for crops that missed out on the benefits of, of advanced plant breeding. So we're pretty excited. I, I'm pretty excited about where this could go. Cool. Um, so speaking to which, like, what is the effect of the environment? Sustainability is a conversation and every single newspaper article you read, every single conversation you have, what can this help us with sustainability-wise? Yeah, so I think just like GMO, like using GM technology or genetic technology as tools in the toolbox for a plant breeder, mm-hmm. every new variety is a tool in the toolbox for a farmer. Okay. Because, because you know, farmers across the country don't farm the same land. They don't even the land within their farm is very different. The challenges mm-hmm. they're trying to deal with, from you know the south side of the farm to the north side of the farm, might be very wet down there. It's very dry up there. So every new variety that we can bring forward and the traits that it brings gives the farmer more choice in how to manage their problems. Because all of the problems they're trying to manage is towards sustainability. How can I be more environmentally sustainable and have better soil? Because if I have better soil, I grow better crops. It's better for the environment at large. How can I be more sustainable in my costs so that food prices remain low? Or how can I be more economically sustainable so that I and my farm will survive Mm -hmm. this next couple? years with all the environmental challenges that are coming at me, droughts and floods and insect pests and you name it. So I think that the real advantage is farmers need the widest access and opportunity for different solutions to their problems that they can get their hands on. And Mm. if this allows us to provide more of those, a new disease resistant crop or stronger straw strength so it doesn't fall over as easy when it rains really hard. 
and then you don't get those fields of wheat that are just smashed into the ground and you can't harvest them, right? Like all right. of this stuff is is important. And uh, if we can bring more of that stuff to the market, it just gives the farmers more to choose from. And do they have to use GMO products? Do like the companies that create these GMO seeds and genetic seeds, do they force the farmers to use their products or how does that all work? Yeah, you hear a lot about that, right? It's like they're Absolutely. forced into this space. And I sat on a panel with a farmer about a year or so ago, or two years ago, I guess before that, because before COVID, because we weren't on panels a year ago. Um, <laughs> and someone asked him that question, and his answer was that I have to buy from these companies. He said, they mm-hmm. need me more than I need them. Right. He's like, I can I can buy from any big company. I can buy from the smaller seed companies that are in my area. Mm-hmm. I can buy whatever variety that I think is going to work best for me. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that if you buy a GM variety that there isn't like a contract signed about how you're going to use that variety. Absolutely, Absolutely. there is. Yeah. No different than when you sign the terms of agreements to the iPhone that you purchase, yep. right? And so like, yeah, when you purchase a piece of technology, you got to agree to use it in the way that it's meant to be used. Right. You're going to you're going to use the, the right pesticides on it um, only when appropriate. You're going to plant it the way it's supposed to be planted um, because it, it comes with a user manual. Um, so that's true. But the idea that they can't choose anything else, I think my greatest example of this is there's a huge market for non-GMO soybeans to Japan. Okay. Uh, very big in Ontario. And I think at sometimes up to 30% of soybeans in Ontario are non-GMO soy to Japan. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Farmers never have trouble sourcing non-GMO soybeans if right. that's what they want to use. Because If they choose to, they can. If the market is there and the farmer is asking for the product – the seed companies will produce the product that the farmer is asking for. Um, It's a business. Right. And then sometimes part of the rumors around that will go, well, but if every farmer tomorrow wanted non-GMO soybeans, they couldn't do it. And it's like, no, but if every person in Ottawa wanted an iPhone tomorrow, you couldn't get those either. Right. But in a year you could, Mm because they would ramp up production like crazy to meet demand. They could make it happen if the demand was there, yeah. Yeah, in in any brand, if you snap your fingers, you can't, everyone can't have that one thing tomorrow. But as demand grows, the the sector grows with it, and we always meet, you know, the sector always meets the demands of its customers. Well, I'm hoping, I know that farmers read those contracts a lot better than my iPhone agreement. Like last week, I got a new (laughs) one, and sure, that five pages of small fine print that I'm sure Apple is just not doing well for me on, signed it at the bottom, didn't even look at it. So hopefully the farmers read those contracts a little more thoroughly than I read mine. (laughs) Yeah, I think farmers are pretty meticulous in the way they read anything that they sign. I'm sure they are. Um, Okay, so tell me about the bees. I've read articles, I've seen stuff, we're having issues with bee populations. Do these technologies that we're talking about today have any effect on them? Good, bad, ugly? Tell me about it. Yeah, so I think there's two parts to the bee conversation. Um, one is there's like, and I think this is sometimes another thing that agriculture needs to explain. There's like the bees that we farm right. that pollinate our field crops. And those are more like livestock. They're more like cattle than they are bees, right? Because like, I had a class on it at university. Yeah. Like, like yeah. you farm them, you house them, you move them around. Yep. They're in New Brunswick doing blueberries, then they move to Ontario to do something, and then they go out west to do canola. Like, like they're livestock. They get shipped around on trucks. Yeah. So there's those bees. Then there's wild bees, which mm-hmm. are very different, right? Like they're mm-hmm. often not in nests. They're solitary bumblebees that like live in holes in the ground. Mm-hmm. If you've ever left something outside in the fall that has a little hole on the side, and then you notice the hole is like packed with dirt, 
Absolutely. That was a bee that did that. Yeah. Right. That's a solitary wild bee. So where, what's the deal with the bees? Um, Pollinators that we use on crops. I think we we heard for like a decade that every year, 50% of bees were dying. Okay. Right. Like those are the headlines. Like 50% of bees are dying every winter. And then you go like, okay, so 50% of bees are dying every year for 10 years. Yeah. You wouldn't have many bees left. Right. But if you look at Stats Canada and even the United Nations global bee population numbers, we have the Mm -hmm. highest amount of bees we've ever had. Okay. Good. So so the bees are not dying. Okay. The the bees we farm are doing quite good. Now, there was reports on colony collapse disorder is something you would have heard. It's ringing a bell. Yeah. And and like lots of bees dying, like big die-offs. And I think what got alarmist about that is like, I got to remember the numbers, but there's like like 20,000 bees in one hive or, mm-hmm. or 40,000 bees in a hive and a single bee know it from school but I don't could know have a thousand hives mm-hmm. so you'll hear that 500,000 bees died and you're and it's like yeah um because there was like 74 million bees in that bee farm or you right, know, whatever right. the number is and what people didn't realize is that these bees are not built for winter environments they're southern mm-hmm. bees that we keep here Mm-hmm. And in the winter, we put insulation around them. And it's quite normal that you'll lose 10 to 40% of your hive every winter. Mm-hmm. And as long as you have 30 to 40% left, that hive will regrow. Rejuvenate, yeah. So part of it was people just started to realize that you were losing 50% of bees. You were losing 50% of bees in the winter. Right. But you'd still have more bees the next summer than you had before because they would multiply and move up. Yeah. But but the idea that you were losing that many bees was really, really concerning. And mm-hmm. then you also had accidents where beehives might have been kept near a fence line. Mm-hmm. And when someone was spraying their field with right. an insecticide, something that is supposed to kill insects, yep. they might have accidentally sprayed the beehives that were on the fence line. Right. Not ideal. But those are individual incidences where mistakes were made. Right. Where either the farmer accidentally put the boom over the fence or the person didn't tell the farmer they were leaving bees right beside the fence line. So the farmer didn't know to not use that product, but to use a different one. Right. So so this is one of the challenges of like all that got into a big kind of malaise of like all the bees are dying. Got and it. That just and then the isn't big the headlines. And that, and that just isn't the case. So on bees for agriculture, we're, we're good. Now, there isn't, it's not that there isn't challenges like varroa mite, yep. which is like this mite that gets in. There's lots of beekeeping is not easy. That's not Let's not accidentally claim that. But but in terms of the bees, of still having enough bees and them growing, that's good. The wild bee population side of things, that's a much more complicated space because mm-hmm. how do you measure individual solitary bees and where they are and when? Just follow them around all day. Yeah. yeah. So so there isn't declarations of you know massive bee collapses of wild populations of bees, but it's an area of study that's very important. And okay. it needs to continue because I don't think we can definitively say that everything's okay or everything's a disaster in wild bee populations. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you look to, I think University of Guelph has an apiculturalist, uh, like a, uh, um, a, a unit that works on that. And their number one concern for bees is urban expansion mm-hmm. because that's a habitat that isn't great for bees <laughs> at but- all. So it's like it's not – there's more to it than just agriculture there. There's like 
what is affecting wild bee populations? Where does it matter and how do we manage it? It could be ag, it could be this, it could be that, it could be something else. Yeah, I can uh, speak to the University of Guelph Apiculture Center. So I took the course, like I mentioned, and I love bees, but over there, away from me. Um, it's irrational. I'm fully aware that it's irrational. But one of the things is we did a little field trip. So we left the classroom. We went to the apiculture center, and they were processing honey, right? And we're standing in a room. So I have like 20 classmates around me. And there's just bees in a, it just flying around everywhere. And if you could write my nightmare, that would be it. Like stuck <laughs> in a room where I have to be quiet and pay attention to the professor while these bees are swarming around me. Like it, somebody should have videotaped me. It would have been comical to watch my facial expressions during that hour I lecture. I, oh, I love them. They're so important, but just over there away from me. I visited bee farms um, to learn, like to get seen some of this firsthand. And I was not, I, I did not enjoy it. It was no. just too many bees. And it's almost like you fear they can sense your fear. I'm sure Cause you're they supposed can. to stay calm. Cause then if you're calm, they're calm. But it's like, but I'm not calm. I'm not, I'm not calm. Right calm. Now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So finally, I have a question that we're going to ask to every guest on the stew. Um, and it can be related to what we spoke about today, but it doesn't have to be. If you had the ears of every single Canadian, what do you wish that they knew about the Canadian food system? Oh, I think it's a doozy. I know, but a great question, right? Because like, how do you boil it down to something that matters? Right. And and I think part of it's the discussion we had earlier about like um, whether we're talking about salmonella and lettuce or whatever it is. It's like that food on the grocery store shelf is safe. Right. Like, I think that is something that that bothers me personally is that when people go into the store and they're choosing between brands or products or branding or marketing mm -hmm. and feeling guilt mm -hmm. <clears throat> over purchasing one product over another because of price and branding of going, I feel that that's the better, the, the safer product for my family, but I got to buy this one because it's cheaper. Right. That tears me apart inside when everything on that shelf is safe. Right. Now, it might have varying levels of nutrition, whether you're buying like <laughs> cookies or you're buying carrots. Absolutely, but what, yes. But what people should know is that it's all safe. And, and no matter how it's marketed, like all you really need to know is what the product is and what's in that black and white nutritional panel on the back. Mm -hmm. Because everything outside of that black and white nutritional panel is marketing. Mm -hmm. and, and at times I can seem very vitriolic about marketing because <laughs> advertising is its own thing. Absolutely. It's, yes. It's where all the confusion in food seems to come from is how products are marketed. And, and I see it in every, and I see it on all sides. It's like, Oh, well I buy organic cause it's non GMO. And I'm like, well, you don't need to do that because X. And then someone will say, well, I won't buy organic cause it doesn't last as long when I get it home. And I'm like, that's also not true. So right. don't, don't not buy organic because you don't think it's going to last because it will. Um, maybe that variety that that organic farmer was growing wasn't as good as it, but that has nothing to do with it being organic. That's just, right. so, so like there's myths on both sides, right? Or I'll hear someone say, well, I won't buy organic because they put manure on for fertilizer. And I don't like the idea of manure being on my food. I'm going conventional farmers do that too. Yeah. It so it's grows like, that's, in the dirt. Yep. yeah, that's a myth about organic farming <laughs> that they use manure. We all use manure. It's one of the best things you can possibly use. I use it on my farm when I was growing up potatoes. So it's like, 
all of these myths aren't helpful and, and that food on the shelf is safe and people should feel comfortable and confident when they go to the grocery store at picking their food based on, if it's me, price battling quality. Perfect. <laughs> right. Okay. And it, it, it's, it's, it's a weighing of, oh, this is a great price, but I like the flavor of this one better. Yeah. Uh, so it's just it's just battling price and quality uh, that that's that's what I'm doing when I go to the grocery store and I blank out on all the stickers. I buy non-GMO project stuff, even though I don't like seeing it in my cupboard because uh, I don't believe in that marketing. I buy organic stuff if it's if it's better quality, better taste. Yeah. Um, if the price is fair. So I because I don't want anyone else judging products on marketing, so I won't judge it on marketing either. I'm going to buy the best product that's available. Well, Ian, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Hopefully our listeners have a better understanding of these technology options and hopefully they share the message at their holiday parties and they get told to shut up just like the both of us do. So uh, thank you for joining today and uh, we'll sign off. Yeah, thank you very much for uh, for listening and, and uh, having a great conversation. I, I appreciate it very much. Perfect. Perfect.